Hello, this is Elizabeth Archer coming to you for a special fifth Thursday version of the Farm and Garden Show. Uh, We're not going to talk about farming or gardening today. Uh, It does have to do with food somewhat, so that's, you know, still kind of relevant, but I hope you'll hang out with me for the next hour. On my last show, I interviewed two people from Blue Zones Mendocino, and in the final 10 minutes of our conversation, we got into a conversation about weight stigma and anti-fat bias. There was a lot to say. Uh, We didn't have enough time to say it all, and the phone started ringing off the hook. So clearly this is a topic that a lot of people are interested in. I'm not going to take calls today because I'm going to say a lot of stuff that is going to land in a lot of ways for listeners. And I encourage you to just sit quietly with your own thoughts rather than try to externalize any of it right away. I also want to share, just be vulnerable. This is hard to talk about. And I hope you will be gentle with your thoughts and any follow-up actions you decide to take. So without further ado, in today's show, I'm going to talk about fatness. I'm going to talk about being fat personally, being fat in society, and hopefully share some helpful insights and language. If this hour helps anyone start to shift their thinking or start a conversation with themselves or gives anyone permission to embrace and love their bodies, then it will be worth it, even though I am putting myself out there in a kind of scary way. (laughs) Um, And if over the course of the show you find yourself feeling angry or defensive or wanting to justify why it's okay to shame fat people or thinking of me as, you know, a fat, lazy slob whose body is probably full of inflammation, please, again, sit quietly with those feelings, with those reactions. Remember that those are about you. They're not about anyone else. Those have to do with your own internalized anti-fat bias, maybe your own internalized shame, and that is no one else's responsibility to manage for you. So reacting outwardly, calling someone a name or judging a body doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do you any good or me or anyone else in the world. I also want to remind everyone that, as always, I speak only for myself and my own experiences. Uh, Fat people, like every single group of people in the world, are not a monolith. Uh, If you are fat and disagree with anything I say, that is totally valid. We all have our own experiences. However, if you are a straight-sized person, and I will define that in a minute... If you are a straight-sized person and have always been straight-sized, don't worry too much about disagreeing with me. Uh, You're not fat, and therefore you can't know what it's like to live in this world in a fat body. So it's much more important for you to listen with an open mind than try to pass judgment or refute for yourself or anyone else anything I've said. Okay, first things first, if it isn't totally obvious yet, I am fat. This is a visibly observable observable fact. There's no point trying to deny it. You can look at me. You can look at my body. Um, you can see that it's fat. I use fat as a neutral term that is preferred by most fat people or at least most fat people that have done the work on ourselves to love and accept our bodies. 
I don't use words like obese or overweight. Those are stigmatizing. Obese is a medical term that doesn't actually mean anything or have a clear definition. There's something like 60 different kinds of obesity, apparently. So um, it's just not a great word. Overweight is also problematic. It implies that there is a correct weight, which there isn't. There is no correct weight. Bodies come in all shapes and sizes. They always have. It is perfectly natural to be thin. It is perfectly natural to be fat. There should be no moral judgment attached to any bodies. And yet, here we are. I also don't like euphemisms like curvy, big-boned, chubby, stout, portly. The list goes on. I'm sure you can think of a few more. Those are generally rejected by the fat-positive community. Um, We just, you know, call it like it is. We're fat. It's not, it shouldn't be a big deal. (laughs) However, that said, every fat person gets to choose for themselves how they want to be identified. So if you think of yourself as curvy, great. There is no problem with that. I myself am, I am a curvy person, but that's not how I define myself outwardly. So let's talk about sizing. I mentioned a minute ago, straight size. That is generally sizing under 14. Those sizes are readily available in all brands, at all stores. Um, the, that's considered a quote unquote, you know, normal body, a good body. Although I'm sure people at size 14 and 12 and maybe even 10 and eight, because society is so messed up, might consider themselves fat. However, you ain't fat. If you're size 14 or under, you are a straight size person. There are then, uh, four definitions of fa- four categories of fatness that are generally accepted in the sort of fat positive world. There's small fat that's size 14 to 18. Uh, you can almost always find something your size in most stores. You're still benefiting from a tremendous amount of thin privilege. The next is mid fat that's sizes 20 to 24. Most brands do make these sizes, but you often have to order them online. You can't always find those in a store. Um, I am kind of on the cusp of small fat and mid fat. I tend to wear size 18, size 20. Next is large fat. That is size 24 to 28. Uh, You can shop in certain stores like Lane Bryant. Um, Some people actually call this Lane Bryant fat. I believe Lindy West defined that term. Uh, But otherwise, many brands don't even make these sizes. You're definitely getting to the size where, you know, people don't want to sit next to you on an airplane or give you a sideways look or, you know, quote unquote, well-meaning stranger might want to talk to you about the inflammation in your body. Um, Oh, I said there were four categories. There's actually five. My apologies. So large fat was the third. The next one is super fat. That's size 28 to 32. People in this category consistently face size discrimination. Um, They're denied health care. They're unable to shop basically in any stores for clothing. The inability to access public spaces is very real. It's very hard to fly or go to a restaurant or sit in a waiting room. Um, Etc. And then the last one is InfiniFat. That is for people who are size 32 and above. Um, some people in this category might not know their size. They might not have an assigned size number. Um, these uh, people in the InfiniFat category are experiencing the worst 
kinds of anti-fat bias. They are routinely shamed by every single person in their society, in the family, in the medical community. They often choose not to leave their home. They have a very hard time finding clothes that fit, very hard to fit into chairs that are made for straight-sized people. So those are just categories. Again, there's no moral judgment or assignment to any of those. All body sizes are valid. Um, that includes thin people and fat people and very thin people and very fat people. We are all just people and we all live in bodies and that is just being human. Those who fall on the smaller end of the size spectrum are afforded a lot more privileges than those on the larger end of the size spectrum. So the further you go, the more likely you are to face discrimination, institutional sizeism, um, be denied medical care. That happens all the time. We'll talk about that later and more. So I am trying to use my small slash mid fat privilege to advocate for the fat community. I'm also white, and so I have that extra level of privilege. The easiest possible way to be fat is in a small, white, fat body, and that is what I have. And so even though having this public conversation is scary, I think it's really important as something that I am passionate about and also something I've been doing a lot of work on in the last few years to love and accept my body. And I want to bring that conversation outward. I want to bring more people into this conversation. And hopefully today is a start. Um, if I say anything today that resonates with you, uh, please feel free to reach out to me, dj at kzyx.org. Just put Farm and Garden Show in the subject so it can get to me. If you have mean things to say, don't don't email me. That's not appropriate. Don't, don't be a troll. Um, but I encourage you to think about why you might find it appropriate to email mean things or judgy things about a person based on what they say in a public space. So yeah, just if that's your sort of knee jerk reaction to me saying all fat bodies are okay, sit with that for a minute. So yeah, I'm in a small white fat body, larger people and people of color, especially face size discrimination. Anti fat bias is inextricably linked to white supremacy. I know, I know some of you are rolling your eyes right now, uh, but we are going to talk about it. Um, right now, I'm going to take a little break to play some songs. The first one is Sophie Tucker, I Don't Want to Get Thin. And the second one is by Big D. Irwin, Happy Being Fat. And just, you know, listen to these fun songs and take a take a pause, take a beat on some of the things I've said. And then we'll get back to... Uh, some more interesting anti-fat topics, specifically why the BMI is trash. Welcome back to the special fifth Thursday edition of the Farm and Garden Show, where we are talking about neither farming nor gardening. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer, and I'm talking about being fat. Yes, you heard that right. If you just tuned in and heard those very fun songs, the first one by Sophie Tucker, I Don't Want to Get Thin, and the second one by Big D. Irwin, Happy Being Fat, maybe you 
caught a little whiff of what today's theme is. But on my last show, we started a conversation about anti-fat bias, and there was a lot to say. So I thought I would continue it here today. Before the break, I mentioned that anti-fat bias is linked to white supremacy. There is just no way around that. It's the truth, and let's talk about why. So first, we got to talk about the BMI You know it, you hate it, doesn't matter what size you are, the BMI is the bane of existence all over. That stands for the Body Mass Index. I'm sure that everybody listening has had their BMI calculated at some point by a doctor. You have to get it done pretty much every time you go into the doctor's office. Um, And if you're getting life insurance, they do your BMI. In school, they do your BMI. And it is this tremendously flawed system that we put a lot of weight and stock into. So the BMI was invented almost 200 years ago by a white European male mathematician. He wasn't even a doctor and he wasn't trying to develop it for the reason, uh, the way it's being used now. It is just very basically a measure of the ratio of a person's weight to their height, full stop, weight to height ratio. It doesn't account for your genetics, your bone density, your muscle mass, your breast size, your environment. It only has to do with your ratio of weight to height, and it was derived from measurements exclusively of white European male bodies. So no women in there, no black people in there. I do think the formula we use today has Japanese men in it, but otherwise pretty much just white men. So the inventor himself never intended the BMI to be used as anything other than a measure for to, to find statistics. But here we are <laughs> in 1985, despite tons of evidence that it was a bad tool to do so, the National Institutes of Health tied BMI to its obesity definition. And then in 1998, they changed their definitions of overweight and obese. So overnight, literally millions of people were suddenly went from, you know, what was considered straight sized or a quote unquote healthy BMI to overweight or obese in 1998. That was the origin of the so-called obesity epidemic. It wasn't that all of a sudden everyone was much fatter than they'd ever been before. It was just that this flawed tool and then the definitions attached to that flawed tool were changed. So the BMI is not accurate for women. It's not accurate for people of color. Uh, It's not even honestly accurate for a lot of white men, which is who it was designed to measure. And again, it was never meant to be as a measure of health. It was meant to be as a measure of finding sort of the statistical average, I believe, of the population 200 years ago, which all they cared about 200 years ago was the, you know, white men. So yeah, the BMI, we really need to ditch that one. Um, So that's that on the BMI. Don't ever feel bad about your BMI number. It doesn't mean anything. And there is a lot more information about the BMI out there that you can find. This is just sort of a surface level overview of it, just to let you know where it came from and why it's not a good tool. Um, And so if your doctor tells you your BMI is, you know, too high or too low or whatever, just feel free to give them a little education. So anti-fat bias dates back to the 19th century. Um, Again, bodies have existed in every shape and size since there have been bodies. So this anti-fat bias is 
absolutely a societal creation and it had to start somewhere and that was in the 19th century magazines like harper's bazaar started saying that white christian women should eat as little as necessary to show their dedication to christ and also to prove their racial superiority This stemmed from 200 years of observing the bodies of enslaved Africans and especially enslaved African women who tended to be, and here's that word that I said I don't usually use, but it is true, tended to be curvier. And then by the 19th century, there were biracial people. So you couldn't always tell someone's race by looking at their skin. So thinness became another proxy for whiteness. Eating habits and body size became another way to police racial segregation. Being thin and engaging in restrictive disordered eating was a way for white people to continue to feel superior to black people and an attempt to keep the racial divide prevalent. So... You can take that for what it is, which is true. You can research it a little bit more on your own, but please don't dismiss it because, you know, as much as we wish it weren't, racism is still very alive and unfortunately well in modern society. And this is just one of the many ways it rears its ugly head. So as a white woman, as a a small fat, mid fat white woman, I certainly experience anti-fat bias, but it is nowhere near the anti-fat bias that black people and other people of color are experiencing on a daily basis. Um, I mentioned before the break that fat phobia is everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. I encourage you to start looking for it, or maybe you don't even have to start after this. Just having your eyes opened to it might be enough. In pretty much every, you know, pop culture, media, any sort of movie or TV show, it's gotten a little better lately, but you know, fat characters are always sidekicks. They tend to be food obsessed. They can be stupid or silly. They never have romantic interests. They're never shown in love. There's always fat jokes. The worst person is Ricky Gervais. I cannot watch anything Ricky Gervais does anymore because every insult he has for anybody is just a fat joke. It's just slamming people's bodies. Um, Monica from Friends in the fat suit, Gwyneth Paltrow in the fat suit in Shallow Hal. Pretty much any actor in a fat suit ever (laughs) is not a good look. So yeah, when I say fat phobia is everywhere, it is everywhere. And it is internalized. We all carry that inside of us. We are all influenced by anti-fat bias. It doesn't matter your size. If you're fat, you're supposed to be losing weight. If you're thin, you're supposed to be maintaining that weight. It is no surprise that eating disorders are so prevalent in society. So I am going to spend the next few minutes talking about eating disorders. If that is a sensitive subject for you, I encourage you to just take a couple minutes break um, and take care of yourself. So eating disorders are commonly assigned to thin people. Um, That's a common misconception that only thin people can have an eating disorder. That is actually one of the things we talked about two weeks ago. Um, One of my guests mentioned that her fat friend was only very recently diagnosed with atypical anorexia and that she and her doctors, I'm misremembering the conversation now, but basically that it was kind of hard to get that diagnosis and also that they maybe didn't think it was valid because they were fat. Fat people 
absolutely suffer from eating disorders at the same rates as thin people. Um, it typically starts, eating disorders typically start with disordered eating. That is the gateway to a full-blown eating disorder. And most diets and medical recommendations to fat people to lose weight are disordered. They are highly restrictive. Highly restrictive food habits are forms of disordered eating. If a doctor or a diet tells you to eat 900 calories a day, that is a prescription for disordered eating. If a diet or a doctor recommends you eliminate everything except fish, chicken, and green juice, that is disordered eating. If you think about food constantly, if the thought of being somewhere in public with food or going grocery shopping or what you're going to eat next or what you ate last and if enough time has passed to consume a few more calories consumes you, you probably suffer from disordered eating habits. And they're very common. They are very common and we do not talk about it. And if you can only maintain your body weight by following a strict food and exercise regimen, that's not the right weight for your body. Taylor Swift in, I believe the documentary is Miss Americana, talks about this, about how she just thought it was normal to get dizzy on stage and how she was so uh weak and tired and it's this very vulnerable moment and she doesn't go as far as saying as she had an eating disorder but she does talk about giving herself the freedom to you know eat what maybe not what she wants but to eat more and how she gained weight and how now she feels strong and just how sad <laughs> that someone as talented as Taylor Swift would have to suffer under these societal delusions that the thinnest you can be is the best you can be. How sad for all of us that we live under those societal expectations. So, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. Eating disorders commonly develop not just from a desire to lose weight, but also because a person struggles with depression, anxiety, substance use, has a history of trauma, this is a really common set of experiences for fat people who have been shamed for their body size. So make no mistake, if you know a fat person, at some point in their life, someone has recommended disordered eating to them. It's totally possible, it's likely even, that it was their doctor. Medical fat phobia is insipid. It is relentless. It is baked into the system for fat people and for medical professionals. And it's not working for any of us. We all know, almost every single one of us knows, even if we don't want to admit it to ourselves, that weight loss regimens, diets, very rarely work. What they are good at is short-term weight loss, after which a person will typically gain all that lost weight back and then more. This is called yo-yo dieting. And another thing doctors know, weight fluctuation is much worse for our health than being fat. I'm going to say that again. Weight fluctuation, gaining and losing weight, is much worse for our health than being fat. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that people whose weight fluctuates the most die twice as quickly or have twice the risk of heart attack or stroke compared to people who maintain a stable body weight. But guess what? That isn't new. The first study to show this was published in 1988. 
1988, we've known that yo-yo dieting and weight fluctuation can be fatal. And yet doctors still recommend weight loss. They still recommend weight loss surgery, drugs, which are, you know, often amphetamines, which are very dangerous. You, as a fat person, and this is changing a little bit, but as a fat person, you almost cannot walk into a doctor's office for anything, for a headache, for, you know, a stitch in your side, for a cold, and not have your weight be commented on. And often, weight loss is the prescription. You have headaches, lose weight. You have joint pain, lose weight. You know, your appendix has burst, well, it's probably because you're fat. So I know that feels and probably sounds extreme to people who haven't experienced that. And if you are in the medical community, if you're a medical professional listening to this, and that is not how you practice medicine, thank you. We need more of you. And if you are a medical professional and this is how you practice medicine, please do some more research. Truly do some more research because the studies are there. The data is there. Prescribing weight loss does not keep fat people alive. It does not make us healthier. (sighs) This is a big subject for me, Um, for all fat people, really. Um, And we keep recommending weight loss and doctors and society keeps commenting on our fat bodies because we live in a society that is deeply infected with anti-fat bias. And here's more proof. Being very thin is much worse for you than being very fat. Thin people, very thin people, have worse health outcomes than fat and very fat people. According to several studies, including one published in 2014 in the Journal of Epidemiology and Public Health. Now I'm going to do some numbers here, and I'm not great with math, so I'm not going to try to analyze it, but just listen to the numbers because they do tell a story. People with a BMI under 18.5 had a 1.8 times greater risk for dying than people with a BMI between 18.5 and 25.9, which are sort of commonly considered the quote-unquote normal weight. Um, People that were quote-unquote obese with a BMI between 30 and 34.9, they had a risk 1.2 times greater. So Very thin people, 1.8 times more likely to die. Uh, Very fat people, 1.2 times more likely to die. So why don't we recommend that very thin people gain weight? Because in society, we celebrate thinness. We celebrate thin bodies. And that is not good for any of us. It's not good for any of us. Knowing you're likely to be told to lose weight is just one reason why a lot of fat people put off going to the doctor. We are consistently denied care. We're told our weight is the problem. We're sent away. And it needs to change because people are dying unnecessarily. This was actually a huge problem during a sort of peak COVID hospitalization, certainly when they were deciding who to give ventilators to because obesity is considered a comorbidity. Well, fat people have worse outcomes because of anti-fat bias, not because of fatness. Fat people delay care. They're denied care. It's not about being in a fat body. It's about living in an anti-fat society. So I hope you can really take that in really believe me when I say that that is the truth. And you don't have to believe me. You can certainly, you know, do your own research. 
So one way around disordered eating and eating dis- developing into eating disorders is what's called intuitive eating. If we could recommend intuitive eating to people instead of weight loss, it could solve a lot of problems. Because when you are dieting and you're you know obsessed with food, it consumes you. You think about it all the time. And often you end up then binge eating and then you feel shame for that binge eating and that can lead to bulimia where you make yourself throw up. Intuitive eating is giving yourself permission to eat whatever you want, whenever you want to. Now, I know that might seem extreme to a lot of you because that's how backward society is that we say you can't just eat what you want when you want. Um, When you're obsessed with food, the idea of giving yourself permission to eat whatever you want whenever you want might feel like, well, I would just, you know, eat ice cream and potato chips all day. But when you give yourself full permission to eat what you want and really internalize that permission, it is incredibly freeing. Incredibly freeing. I know because I've done it. And I'm going to talk about my personal story after the next break. But intuitive eating often leads to healthier food choices and better health outcomes, both physical and mental. Now, with intuitive eating, especially if you've been doing a lot of restrictive eating, you might gain weight. If you gain weight under intuitive eating, especially after the first you know, few weeks or months or whatever, when you really are just giving yourself permission to listen to your body and what your body wants to eat and not sort of, you know, consuming all of the previously forbidden foods, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it does, you know, you will level out. It's There's not, people don't just want to eat ice cream and potato chips or other high calorie, high fat, high sugar foods. That is really just not the way that humans are designed. Now, certainly uh, issues of poverty drive people to things like fast food because it's cheap and quick and it's a lot of calories for not a lot of money. Um, but People are hardwired as omnivores. We want to eat a wide range of foods. We want meats and fruits and vegetables and legumes. And yeah, we want sugar. Sugar is delicious. Fat's delicious. There is room for everything in our diet. But intuitive eating gives you an opportunity to be free of food obsession. And if you gain weight under intuitive eating, that means that the body size that you had before was probably not your natural body size. So many people are keeping themselves artificially thin because that is how we are taught we are good and morally righteous and superior by restricting. Um, And it's just very freeing to release yourself from those those expectations. <sighs> are you with me? How are you feeling? Are there um, probably some people who are nodding their heads? Maybe some people are very upset and disagree with everything I'm saying and all of your reactions are fine. Um, it's a very loaded, very loaded topic. Connected to this movement among a lot of fat people and straight size people is this this topic called health at every size or haze. You might have seen it. I am personally not a huge fan of haze. I understand it's an important starting place for a lot of people in their journey toward body acceptance and food liberation. Um, it does have mostly positive 
outcomes. I'm not going to get real deep into why I'm not that excited about Hayes. If you're interested in learning more um, about Hayes and also, you know, some of the, there's a lot of drama in the Hayes community right now. You can Google Lindo Bacon and there's a lot to read there. Um, but health at every size encourages people accepting bodies as they are, recognizes that you can make changes, significant changes even, uh, to your diet and exercise habits and experience improved health outcomes without losing any weight. That's very common. It's very common to make changes to your your diet and your exercise and you know also getting more sleep and doing things for your mental and emotional health. Just all the things that can make us healthier as people and not lose any weight. Losing weight is not tied to improved health outcomes. The biggest drawback to Hayes, health at every size, and a lot of you aren't going to like this, no one owes anyone health. I, your radio show host, bravely talking about being fat, do not owe you, dear listener, health. You do not owe your neighbor health. Collectively, we do not owe the insurance companies health. What even does health mean? There is no easy definition of health, first of all. And it is certainly not observable by looking at someone's body. And when we say health, we typically are talking about physical health. But what about emotional and mental health? How important are those? And why did those get lost in the conversation when we're talking about you know, weight and weight stigma? No one owes anyone health. You do not have to be healthy to be worthy of love and respect. And that is my biggest issue with the Health at Every Size movement. I'm going to take another break and um, then I'm going to come back and talk about my story, my sort of recent evolution as a fat person. That is Make Your Own Kind of Music by Cass Elliott, also known as Mama Cass. The incomparable Mama Cass did not die from choking on a ham sandwich. That is such an ingrained fat phobic part of our pop culture lore. Um, Mama Cass died from a heart attack. Not because of her weight, but because of the intense, constant, and cruel fat shaming she endured as a public figure. It led her to make dangerous decisions. She routinely went on crash diets. She's rumored to have taken weight loss and other drugs, which would absolutely have been methamphetamine. So Mama Cass, rest in peace, here to put that rumor to bed. She died from a heart attack, not choking on a ham sandwich. So I have been promising this whole show. Oh, this is Elizabeth Archer. Welcome back. Uh, This is a special fifth Thursday edition of the Farm and Garden Show. We are not talking about farming or gardening. We are talking about being fat. So we've come to the part of the show where I'm going to share a little bit of my own story. And I'm going to do it by reading you something that I wrote recently on my 40th birthday. And I'll just go right into it. I have long had big dreams for this milestone birthday, but instead I did something much simpler and more radical. I went on a walk. I've spent the past year, maybe a little more, working to love and accept my body and unlearn and work against anti-fat bias, part of which is learning to love and accept and advocate for all bodies. I finally have a good relationship with food. 
I've always loved food, but there's been a persistent societal implant of restriction, of needing to earn my food, of having to feel badly about eating certain things, or feeling morally righteous if I'm eating one way versus another. In my life, I've counted calories, counted carbs, counted protein, kept food journals, bought and read diet cookbooks, tried all sorts of eating habits on for size, some of them disordered, including cheat days, not eating after 7 p.m., not eating more than 20 grams of carbs a day, not eating gluten, the list goes on. And the only thing that it ever accomplished was to give me an obsessive relationship with food and make me feel bad about my body and judge other people's bodies and work to prove to those around me that I'm a good fat person who is actively trying to dominate my genetically determined shape to conform to a deeply damaging yet widely held belief that thin bodies are good bodies and fat bodies are bad. I have undone a lot of that damage. I eat what I want, when I want, and my relationship with all food is what I would consider healthy. Buying a box of Cheez-Its is no longer a moral dilemma. I don't eat in secret anymore, hiding in a bathroom or literal closet at a party if I felt I'd already eaten a socially acceptable number of the appetizers and couldn't risk being seen eating more, or closing the door to my office, back when I worked in an office, to eat the donut I snuck out of the kitchen. A donut that was there to be eaten by anyone who wanted it and was laden with no inherent shame except what society had taught me to feel. It is both totally ironic and totally unsurprising that as a result of giving myself permission to eat whatever I want, whenever I want it, I eat less now. Now I can buy a box of Cheez-Its and not obsess about its presence in my house until I eat it all in one sitting and then feel sick and ashamed. Now I can have a donut anytime I want it. I no longer feel compelled to eat one when it's free and available, because the moral calculation is that this is a gimme, a freebie, a pass to be bad. Sometimes I want it, sometimes I don't, but I listen to my body now instead of the Greek chorus we've collectively created over the past few decades, so constant and loud it's impossible to escape. We all contribute to and are influenced by that chorus. There is literally no escaping it. There is only becoming aware of it, learning the lies it tells, and choosing instead to focus on the small but growing voice of the dissenters who are finally saying, enough, we will not live like this anymore. I'm relieved and proud to be in that group now. I have worked to heal myself at every age and size. In high school, I was probably a size 8 and already felt fat. By the end of college, I was a 10 or 12. For most of my 20s, I was a 14 and 16. And now, at size 20 and age 40, I finally love, respect, and appreciate my body. I understand and accept that bodies are meant to change, that my body is a miracle, that it created the miracle of my daughter, that it has taken care of me every day despite years of loathing and abuse that the least important and least interesting thing about my body is how it looks and how it is perceived by others. I am so grateful for my beautiful, perfect, fat body. I have gotten to a good place with food, and now my attention is turning to movement. I've always loved food, so it was easy and natural to focus my attention there. I have not always loved exercise, except probably as a small child whose life revolves around physical play, and I hadn't yet been taught that exercise is a form of domination over my body. I spent years buying into the notion, subconsciously at first, that good, moral people exercise, and lazy, immoral people do not. I was never taught that I could move my body for the joy of it, never given permission to find ways to relate to my body that weren't directly tied to being or becoming thin. And so exercise and I had a bad relationship, and the only way I knew how to leave that relationship was to stop all forms of it. 
And in doing so, I also had to battle past the feelings of shame that came from not exercising, the sense that I was lazy and worthless for resisting it so intensely. And that gradually gave way to an understanding that I was traumatized and not exercising was a part of healing from that trauma. Now, having finally unpacked what I was force-fed by every possible societal influence about exercise and weight stigma for four decades, I am ready to gently ease back into moving my body. I have to relearn what feels good. I have always loved walking and swimming and gardening and yoga. So on my birthday, finding myself scrolling on Instagram and feeling kind of blah, I made a different decision for myself. I put on my shoes and coat and earphones, started a podcast, and stepped out my front door. It was brightly overcast, about 55 degrees, perfect walking weather. I walked without a purpose or goal or destination. I noticed and gently released every thought of, I wonder how many calories I've burned, and I have to do this every day now. I walked for as long as I wanted to, and then I walked home. The walk felt good, and I hope I do more of them. I hope I find my way back to swimming. I hope I find a yoga instructor, online maybe, who has traditional cultural connections to the practices and teaches in a way that I like. But I know that if and when these things don't happen, for any number of days or weeks, that it will not result in shame or self-loathing. Or if it does, that I will be able to notice and release those feelings quickly. And again, ironically and not at all unsurprisingly, by treating myself with gentle love and respectful care, I am far more likely to move my body in ways that feel good and joyful. And that is how a walk on my 40th birthday became a radical act of self-love. That is a post that I wrote the day after my 40th birthday on Facebook. I got quite a lot of feedback from it, as you can imagine, mostly very positive. Um, a lot of the comments, though, were problematic. And a lot of them said, you know, you're so beautiful. Here's the thing. You can be fat and beautiful. I know I'm beautiful. I'm both. They are not mutually exclusive. So this is a gentle education, especially for thin folks, uh, telling a fat person they are beautiful after they talk about their fat body or saying you're not fat or you're not that fat isn't what's called for. <laughs> Whether you mean it in that way or not, the historical and underlying message is that you are beautiful in spite of your fat body, or you're not as fat as someone else, and therefore you're better. So what's infinitely more relevant than me being beautiful is that healing my relationships with food and now exercise and accepting and loving my body as is and not trying to change it in any way has made me happy. Why is happiness not the end goal that we are taught to reach for? Why is thinness what we're trying to reach for? I, for one, am happy about being happy. So I'd like to share a few easy ways you can support fat people. Number one, don't comment on other people's bodies. Never comment on weight loss ever. Someone could be sick or have an eating disorder. So just let's not talk about each other's bodies, okay? Uh, don't describe clothing as flattering. What flattering means is that makes you look less fat. Let's just eliminate flattering from our language. Um, here's a big one that you can do if you're a straight size person or a fat person. Decline to be weighed at the doctor's office. Healthcare is very rarely tied to weight. The exception is dosing recommendations for certain pharmaceuticals. As a fat person going to the doctor, it's already stressful enough. So declining to be weighed can be very scary. If you are a straight-sized person or a small or mid-fat, I encourage you to decline to be weighed to normalize the practice of declining to be weighed. 
Another way you can support fat people, if you're eating out or you're in a waiting room somewhere with flimsy or small chairs, ask a manager if they have considered getting seats that accommodate larger bodies. If you ever use stock photos, consider using stock photos of fat people. You can find this very thing at a website called bodyliberationphotos.com. Let's normalize looking at fat bodies, celebrating fat bodies. Um, And you can start unpacking your own anti-fat bias. You can read one or more of these excellent books. What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon, who is also the co-host of my absolute favorite podcast, Maintenance Phase. I will warn you, they swear a lot, uh, but they teach you so much in the process. Start with the episode called The Body Mass Index. Another book is Hunger, A Memoir of My Body by Roxane Gay. Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. And this last one I really got a lot out of. The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love by Sonia Renee Taylor. To start unpacking your own anti-fat bias, if you're on social media, find fat influencers and follow them. Um, Then photos of fat people will start to show up in your feed. You'll see fat bodies as normal. The more we normalize and embrace looking at and appreciating fat bodies, the less we'll think of fat bodies as bad or gross. Here are some accounts I recommend on Instagram. If you follow and like them, please pay them for their labor. Uh, Body image with Brie, B-R-I. Reagan Chastain, R-A-G-E-N-C-H-A-S-T-A-I-N. Your fat friend, Y-R, and then fat friend. The Lindy West, Chairbreaker, Historical Fat People, Meg.Boggs, two G's and Boggs, and Sonia Renee Taylor, Sonia with a Y. I highly recommend all of those Instagram accounts. I hope you are all making progress in your own anti-fat bias discovery journey. I hope today's show was helpful in that way. For now, I just encourage you to sit with what I talked about today, however that landed for you. Um, If it starts a conversation with yourself, with someone else, with your medical provider, if you ditch all the diet cookbooks you have in your kitchen, um, if you give yourself permission to eat whatever you want, and just if you can find your way to looking at fat bodies with love and joy, I think that's going to be good for everybody, fat and thin people alike. This has been a special fifth Thursday edition of the Farm and Garden Show. I am Elizabeth Archer. I'm taking a week off in April, so I will be back with you at the end of April with another normal installment of the Farm and Garden Show. And take good care of yourselves. Learning to love yourself and like learning to love your body is like that whole journey that I feel like every person, but more specifically women, have to go through. So I feel like doing this is a good way to kind of break through and kind of seal the last chapter of the learning to love and just loving. What's deeper than the darkest best? Kept secret beneath the surface we came. Let it bring us together. That was Lizzo, My Skin, beautiful anthem for fat bodies, for black bodies, for all bodies, really. We all came into this world with a body, and we will all leave here with one. And truly, the most 
uninteresting and unimportant thing about our bodies is how they look. I hope you've learned something today. I hope you're coming away from this hour with a newfound respect and appreciation for your body and for other people's bodies. And if you have, you can email us at dj at kzyx.org. Put farm and garden in the header. I'd love to hear from you. See you in a month. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.